Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, home of the two-time NFC South Division champions, the New Orleans Saints, Can I Get a Hoodat, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where the Razorbacks have rules for their woo-pig suey call. If you don't believe me, Google a proper hog call. Thank you for joining us for episode 32, State of Wisconsin versus Stephen Avery. On July 29, 1985, PB traveled to a beach on the shore of Lake Michigan in Manitowoc County, Wisconsin, to spend a day with her family. During the late afternoon, while she took a run on the beach, she was kidnapped, sexually assaulted, beaten, and left for dead in the woods nearby. A local deputy believed that PB's description of her assailant fit Stephen Avery, and county law enforcement fixated on him as the perpetrator. In spite of his alibi and leads pointing to another suspect, Gregory Allen, Avery was arrested, charged, convicted, and sentenced for attempted sexual assault and attempted murder of PB. And that was actually sexual assault and attempted murder of PB. In 2003, after serving 18 years in prison, Avery was exonerated by DNA recovered from a single hair that linked Gregory Allen to PB's assault in 1985. Tonight, we'll be talking to Michael Griesbach, a former Manitowoc County prosecutor and author of two books about the Stephen Avery cases. The first, The Innocent Killer, a true story of wrongful conviction and its astonishing aftermath, chronicles the 1985 case, Avery's exoneration, and what went wrong during the original investigation. The second book, Indefensible, The Missing Truth About Stephen Avery, Teresa Hallback, and Making a Murderer, is an in-depth look at the 2005 disappearance and murder of Teresa Hallback and the evidence that was left out of the Making a Murderer documentary. We're a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Do I have, uh, Miss Lee. Do what? Do we have two, two Michaels yet? 
I believe we have the second Michael. I did want to, uh, before we bring Mr. Griesbach on, I did want to uh, remind everybody, I don't know if everybody's seen the Facebook page, but we are now available on iTunes. What you do is you go to your Apple device and go to the podcast section, and there's a section that says search by URL. You're going to copy the URL that was posted on the Facebook page and paste it into that, and you'll be able to subscribe to all of our content from iTunes. That is great news, Michael. Thank you. Not a problem, not a problem. But without further ado, I believe Mr. Griesbach is holding. I did search the area code in Wisconsin, so let's hope. Let's go ahead and bring him in hot, Mr. Griesbach. Yeah, I am indeed here, and uh, this is Wisconsin, where uh, it's actually not too bad out today for for, uh, this part of the country. For December. Yeah, Yeah. I think it hit 30 here in northeastern Wisconsin. I'm a little balmy, huh? Well, see, now, we're both in the south, and I'm further south than Michael. Yeah, in the south, you you all got hammered pretty good with a storm recently, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, we got hammered, I believe, last We didn't, but uh, I know parts of Arkansas got hammered with some ice and snow this past past, uh, weekend, I believe. But, I mean, I'll tell you what, Mr. Griesbach, 30 degrees, and I'm hiding underneath the covers in bed. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Thirty degrees is uh, real nice around here. We we uh, you don't have that ten below stuff that we get sometimes, but uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It, uh, it's the way it is, you know. I, so I'm in I'm in New Orleans. If anybody sees a snowflake, they shut everything down. I bet. Yeah, Bourbon Street uh, <laughs> turns uh, isolated and everything else. Huh? Yeah, well, we yeah. do have some nice things. I, I suppose the people want to hear about the Avery case, but I tell you, there are some nice things about the cold and the snow. We go cross-country skiing very often up at uh, State Park. Uh, mm-hmm. I even think about this, but it's the exact area where Penny Burnson was assaulted so many years ago, uh, Point Beach State oh. Park, which uh, abuts now, Lake Michigan north of Two Rivers. But some gorgeous areas. And and I, I know I know her name is out there, but if if we can tonight, I'd kind of like to just refer to her by initials. Uh, yeah, I, I, you're right. That's a better idea. P, uh, PB, I guess, if you want to put it that way, has <laughs> been. Um, how do I put this? She herself has um, very much taken the tragedy that happened to her. And not kind of shied away from um, from what it meant to her and what it should mean mm-hmm. to others. She became a spokesperson for victims' rights and really impressively, I think, a spokesperson and an involved person for the restorative justice program in prison. Uh, meeting yeah. with offenders, you know, and talking to them about uh, the effect of uh, a crime on them. And then after the exoneration, um, meeting very publicly with Avery and uh, testifying at the Avery Task Force uh, and trying Correct. to do what she could to, could to deal with uh, false identification, eyewitness identification, and really has spoken a lot. I've spoken with her at presentations, but I, I think that's fine. I know uh, PB, as we'll call her, has also very much um, 
distance herself from the whole case since uh, making a murder uh, three years ago. Yeah. Three years ago, I think, and next week, right? I think it was December 18th of 2015, so it's exactly three years uh, next week. Um, and that, you know, <laughs> was very upsetting to her like it was to a lot of people. We all forget as we all get into these debates uh, about, you know, whether Stephen and Brendan were guilty or about whether even if they were guilty they received a fair trial or or whether the police planted evidence or whether the confession was voluntary, et cetera, et cetera. As these debates go on, we forget about some of the human portions of this. And one of them is uh, that PB um, <laughs> uh, had her face, her pummeled face, an image of it, um, just horribly bruised a photo from the original trial and exhibit mm-hmm. uh, plastered over Netflix for the world to see um, an image that she didn't want her children to see had been protective of them uh, since the event itself when she Mm -hmm. basically crawled into the Lake Michigan uh, beach after being assaulted and tried to tried to wash the blood off her face for so her children wouldn't see her the way she was. And here it is, you know, they're young adults now and that's what they saw back in making a murder. When it happens. So, you know, there's lots of effects on people from all of this. It's a tragic story from beginning to end. Um, And there's some of the tragedies we just we don't think about, you know, Um, as we get into this strange, uh, you know, back and forth um, accusatory uh, ugly discussion, usually ugly discussion, with minds sort of made up ahead of time um, uh, about uh, what what we believe happened, and not a lot of listening going on, and a lot of harm happening to a lot of people. Correct. It's the intersection of entertainment and criminal justice. It is. You're right. Uh, very much so. And. Um, you know, criminal justice is an important topic, and uh, if it's clearly entertainment that is uh, is 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 portrayed, and it's portrayed clearly as entertainment, that's you can you can uh, certainly have an effect on what you think are the problems and what should happen with criminal justice through true, you know, documentaries um, or through entertainment. Art, I guess I'd rather call Mm -hmm. it entertainment. Art can do a lot. Um, Art is a reflection of of the world and all its issues, and it uh, it can be very beneficial to all kinds of things, not to mention more interesting, I think, than some kind of dull presentation. but art is art, and if it's if it's portrayed as uh, not art and not entertainment, but as truth, um, it has a lot of consequences. And um, correct, you know, it just it 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 may be well intended, but it does a whole lot of damage. And in the end, unfortunately, I don't think it does um, do what the folks who presented it wanted it to do. No, because the courts where the decisions are ultimately made, they they aren't going to take making a murderer and and use it as evidence. 
no. in any hearing or any any proceeding. Yeah, well, I don't think the the makers of making a murder, as it were, had any <laughs> um, false impression or any belief that they, and frankly, I don't think Kathleen Zellner has any any honest belief that she is going to be able to overturn these convictions. It's not really what I was referring to. I was referring more to that um, when your premise is false, when when you start with something that's not true, and in this case, what's not true is that there was an injustice uh, by police planting in the second Avery case. When that's yeah. your starting point, eventually um, it unravels so that your good intention, um, well-intended folks, and no matter what, there is going to be some good, and there already has been some good that comes out of making a murder. But in the end, you've created such a, a, a chaotic situation and uh, division um, that, to me anyhow, it seems unlikely that that's where real reform is going to come from. That gets people hyped up, and I guess it certainly uh, draws awareness to what are some real problems in the system. Uh, that's why I agreed to interview with uh, Laura Ricciardi and, and Moira Demos um, for this um, when it happened uh, years ago. But when when things are start with a lie, they it, it's very very rare that something good comes from a lie. Uh, yes, <clears throat> most definitely. And uh, now my reference was a lot of people. I've you know been browsing Reddit and and different forums and Facebook and social media, and there are people who think that, you know, all the courts need to do is look at making a murder and they're going to let Daphne and Avery out. And they yeah, don't understand okay. that's not how it works. Right. And thank goodness so. it doesn't. You know, that's that's called vigilante justice. And uh, there was a great article by a columnist of, uh, the, in the New Yorker that kind of took making a murder to task. It pointed out the good points of it, but it also pointed out, and this was only a, maybe a month after making a murder, this column was written, pointed out how things were distorted uh, so badly that um, the police were all but convicted in the court of public opinion uh, mm -hmm. without real evidence backing it up of the worst kind of police conduct you can imagine. And so right. it, it's justice by um, its highbrow vigilante justice was the term that was used by the columnist. And I thought she hit it right on the head. Um, you know, this will make a lot of people angry that are absolutely convinced even after really exploring it. And I think for the most part, you know, exploring it with um, open you know, open hearts at least. I'm not so sure about open minds, but well-intended, you know, exploration kind of of what they think happened. Uh, but for whatever reason, they their their minds have uh, not followed their hearts, um, at least in my opinion. And they'll say the mm -hmm. same thing about me. Um, but um, they won't they they won't like um, any reference to 
someone who does care about the justice system, like the columnist for the New Yorker, who said, you know, it's important to point out flaws in the criminal justice system, um, but you can't do it uh, by uh, falsely presenting uh, a story if you're acting right. like you're truthfully presenting a story. There's just there's something essentially wrong about that, and it, it's a reliance on emotion, which is the same kind of thing that happened in vigilanteism. It's more sophisticated, so they call it highbrow vigilante justice, and I just think she hit the nail on the head with it. I I read that. I agree. Yeah. Uh, that was one of the first that I found. Um, I didn't have Netflix for a while, so I'm kind of late to the party. Sure. Um, but I'm I'm the per, I'm the person that I see something like Making a Murder of Paradise Lost, and then I go to Fast Case and I search and find the appellate opinions. And I read those. Mm-hmm. And once I read those, then I decide where I fall. You as are far an as unusually guilt or innocence. A very analytical uh, viewer, and you know you're unusual. That's fantastic. That working as a paralegal for twenty something years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's just that's yeah. you know that's how I approach it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's called critical thinking, and it's called going to, you know, actual sources. What strikes me as really odd, though, is that there are, you know, really smart people, and some of them, I think, are well-intended, maybe most of them, Mm -hmm. who, even though they've looked at all the primary sources, they've read the transcripts, they've read the police reports, um, they know the case inside and out, but they've concluded in their analysis, that making a murderer is right. Um, And that, to me, is a really interesting phenomenon of this whole thing, how, you know, two different people, let's say, with intelligent people, even well-intended people, can come up with such opposite conclusions from the same set of facts. And, you know, I... I know I'm getting sort of uh, whatever esoteric here, and I don't mean to, but I, I just I've been thinking about this a lot because of the discussions going on and and some of the kind of ugliness about it. And I've come to believe that it much of it depends on where you came from in the beginning, where you were coming from. So mm-hmm. if you if your mindset was suspicion and easy to accept conspiracy and kind of thinking that law enforcement um and DAs and courts are all you know in cahoots. corrupt in cahoots but it, it, and protect, it, protecting it, one another yeah the appellate courts aren't going to reverse the conviction because they're protecting the trial judge yeah which is crazy. Now, you could say mm-hmm. appellate courts aren't going to reverse convictions because they're wimps, uh, <laughs> and sometimes they are. <laughs> I mean, I, I I think there are cases when they should have, um, but they're bound by the law and what it should say. But I can tell you an example. Steve Glenn, um, who's one of Avery's uh, uh, lawyers on the wrongful conviction case, oh, I was on yeah. a panel. I was on a panel discussion with Steve once, and he was livid. And there were, uh, I believe there were Court of Appeals judges in the audience. And he went on a rant 
um, specifically with regard to the Avery case, uh, this, the, mm-hmm. the second appeal in 1995, when there was DNA evidence, the DNA fingernail scrapings, not the final <laughs> DNA, you know, not the hair, correct, uh, correct. but fingernail scrapings that came back to some unknown third party, and the court of appeals, the trial court denied the motion, said no, nope, it could have been other things, it could have been PB, just kind of. Uh, you know, it could have been the the ambulance folks, the EMT people. It could have been some other uh, person that Why? that was the source of it, not necessarily the assailant, which might make some sense, I suppose. I don't know, but you know, I don't know that there was harm in at least getting it further tested. But anyhow, uh, Steve Glenn uh, was livid that the way they wrote the discuss the decision was. Um, so confident in the conviction and mm-hmm. almost arrogant in in the correctness of what happened earlier when, in fact, we know that it wasn't correct and there wasn't reason for confidence in it at all. Right. Um, but, so I get, you know, why people sometimes think courts, uh, courts don't keep an open mind on things, but it is a very complicated system as you know, working in the business. And what you get are people on the outside who think that, you know, kind of looking back, Monday morning quarterbacking, um, look back at everything with uh, a view that probably isn't overly realistic in terms of how perfect everything should be. Right. But also I want to point out real real quick, and and then we'll we'll move into the meat and potatoes here, the reason that they did not grant him a new trial on those early DNA, I think the limits of testing were reached at that time because that was 93, 94, 95. But right. also, he was not excluded because he and Penny and PB had the same profile. Now, there was. Some... And there was, a stray, there was a stray allele. Mm-hmm. Now, just so, um, that, so it's really clear, there was uh, some DNA from her right. uh, fingernail scrapings that was clearly that was not exactly correct. Not PB. It was and that was it was foreign to PB and foreign to Avery. However, even Avery's expert said, "Well, a foreign allele could be picked up by casual contact. She didn't have to scratch anyone." Right. That was the the argument, um, and yeah. you know whether or not the argument is right. I think Steve Glenn's point was the confidence with which the court of appeals decision mm-hmm. treated a verdict that was based on not much, frankly, and it, as it right. turns out, as it turns out, um, a uh, misidentification, not just an accidental misidentification, in my view. Uh, but a manipulated misidentification by the police um, put up against, uh, what was it, 16, 17 alibi witnesses, mm-hmm. documentary evidence uh, in the form of a receipt from Shotko um, showing the right. exact time when Avery was there, which would have made it very unlikely uh, for him right. to but the concrete, against, sorry, The concrete ahead. truck driver coming in and saying he left an hour before the whole Avery family said he did. Yep, and that played a role. In had it he not, 
had he not, had he been that consistent, they might have, you know, they might have believed the Avery family. Maybe so, maybe not. You know, we'll never know. Um, yeah. But the fact remains, um, the jury convicted Mr. Avery on, on very little evidence, um, a very impressive PB who did believe it was Avery, um, but clearly some bias against people from the wrong side of the tracks. And, um, you know, juries will do what they'll do. You can't really fault jurors too much, um, although this happened a couple weeks before Christmas. And jurors, you know, as trial lawyers, we hate to have certain times uh, when trials go. One of them is shortly before Christmas. You don't want the jurors, um, if you're the prosecutor, either just kind of upset that they're they're there why are you doing this? It's a dumb little case. You know, it's disorderly conduct. We don't want to be wasting our time. Or if it's a serious case, like the assault and the sexually false imprisonment they charged and attempted murder, uh, Penny, um, if it's a serious case like that as a defense lawyer or as a defendant, you don't want a trial right before Christmas because the jury doesn't want to send a victim home for Christmas uh, with a not guilty verdict that they think victim. Right. And they do think, you know, they've been, been uh, that they're not believed and they've been shunned by a jury, and they don't want to do that. So Avery had some mighty bad luck in uh, 1985, um, mm-hmm. not to mention what I believe were some um, beyond just mistaken or accidental activity by the police and the prosecutor uh, involved. Yeah. But unfortunately, with uh, with Mr. Avery, um, he didn't really help himself too much because he did have a checkered background and he did have a history of uh, violence. Well, I mean, there was domestic violence issues in his marriage, and then there was the cousin. Uh, we'll call her FM, just to be consistent. Who he was apparently sexually harassing, stalking. And eventually ran her off the road and pointed a rifle at her, ordering her into, her, into his car. Right. And only saved by having her baby and saying, I can't leave the baby. Right. Now, of course, what, we, you know, in terms of he didn't help himself, that's true in the sense that, um, you know, he was on police radar and and, you know, understandably so. But it's not true, and, and you're not suggesting that, but um, that any of that should have been considered, and it wasn't considered by the jurors in right. trial. Correct. Because, of course, it's you know irrelevant and really prejudicial to whether or not he did that particular crime, which is the whole point, you know, and this is a great example mm-hmm. of, of the saying how it's, uh, better to let uh, ten or a hundred or a thousand go guilty than to convict one who's innocent. The, the, the right. perception or the belief that I ah, didn't do this, somebody's a bad guy, and he could have done something else, is exactly what we want to avoid, and is what the justice right. system is. And and that is essentially about. what the Manitowoc Sheriff's Department did in that particular instance. I think you're right. Um, I, I think, think it's difficult for police sometimes, though, when they have frequent flyers, that it's difficult for them not to think of, you know, this guy when something that fits his repertoire 
uh, comes across your desk in a report. I think it's it not, makes sense. Yep. It's natural that you know, they think that they suspect, but they're not doing their job and they're not doing justice. And the lawyers, the prosecutors, are really not doing their job if they if just they go with their suspicion and they ignore evidence. Then they're, anything they're else. completely, yeah, I have no, maybe that's why I'm so into this. People wonder, you know, why do you even care about the, the old case? Why why are you talking about that? This That was years ago, you know. Well, to me, that is the case that really holds the lessons for how this system should work and how it doesn't sometimes work, how mm-hmm. basic, you know, fairness, decency, justice works you know, toward people like Stephen Avery, or it doesn't work toward people like Stephen Avery, how some police would never do something like happen here, and some prosecutors would never do something like what happened to Avery in 85, but some would, and here's what happened. Why? Some do. That, to me, is 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 the importance of the 85 case. Um, you know, the 2005 case is is a complete different theme in my mind. Of course, in the mind of people who are convinced the police set them up, it's the same lessons, you know, corruption. Right. And injustice. But to me, it's just an example of, of how one thing can come back and one thing leads to another, which leads to another, which in this case means an injustice. In 1985, hung around and such that when a murder happened, it was brought up again and almost mm-hmm. um, led to another injustice, which would have been the acquittal of Stephen Avery. Um, right. And making a murder is injustice uh, is 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 part of it, too, in the sense of falsely accusing police and putting a victim's family, several victims' family, through hell and um, falsely accusing uh, people of possibly being involved in murder in a very public way. So injustice has a way of uh, hanging around for, I guess, 30 years in this case. Mm-hmm. Right. And in, in this case, with Gregory Allen, who was revealed by DNA to be the uh, real perpetrator. And I was mistaken. I thought it was, because it was a hair, I thought it was mitochondrial DNA. But it turns out this was a hair with a root. Correct. So it could be subjected to nuclear DNA, which conclusively identified Gregory Allen. It did. Uh, But he had the same sort of uh, sorted uh, history of, peeping and and indecent exposure and those things and the the uh, I read one of the the AG's report apparently they never had enough to charge him the police were you know arresting him but then the DA couldn't charge him well the DA didn't charge him that's so, a judgment call right about when the DA believes there's enough to prove beyond a reasonable mm-hmm. doubt. But there's no question, and you're right, by the way, by 2003, DNA testing had been advanced enough that that hair could be tested um, and show, you know, inconclusively that it was Gregory Allen's DNA, and that didn't, wasn't in existence in, obviously, 1985. 
1995 or even even 1995 when DNA testing had started right. in the early 90s. So, true enough, um, I would say that the police had more than just the realization that Gregory Allen, you know, was a as they called him a peeper or uh, somebody who had a little bit of a problem. Police were on mm-hmm. Gregory Allen for very good reason. I mean, he had done. Some right. assaults that are beyond the pale, you know, breaking into a 17-year-old woman's house while her parents were up north and, and uh, holding her at knife point and wanting to rape her, you know, and then holding mm-hmm. the knife to, to her uh, throat as he left and, and uh, being, I mean, some very, very severe problems. He was known as the same Correct. man among local police because of some of his assaults had been on the beach. Uh, mm-hmm. One police agency was absolutely convinced that he was Penny's assailant. Uh, so were people in our office, in the DA's office. I wasn't there at the time. The DA, I mean, let's call it for what it is. Uh, the DA at the time basically lied and said that Allen had an alibi. Uh, Gregory mm-hmm. Allen had an alibi. His probation agent claimed he knew where he was that day. Turns out he wasn't even on probation. Wasn't, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. you know I could go on and on, but this was more than just kind of police, nah, you know, not quite doing their job and just focusing a little too much on one person. Maybe the original arrest. Clearly, they thought the sheriff himself thought for a couple of mm-hmm. days that he had the right guy. You know, based on not much, frankly, just a very loose description. But within days, I, I, and this is my belief, um, you know, other people disagree with this, but personally having looked at this very closely, I don't know how they could not have known that they had the wrong person and they intentionally let the real assailant, Gregory Allen, go free. And that should be pointed out loud and clear. Um, it wasn't even pointed out loud and clear by making a murder. And it mm-hmm. That the real injustice here has been totally ignored um, because it's not as interesting enough, or it doesn't have the potential to to actually affect things anymore. And that's true; it doesn't. But that doesn't mean you make up something to uh, to affect an outcome that's not true. Right. Um, so. And and that is true because Gregory Allen had at least two more victims between 85 and 95 when he was eventually arrested, tried, and convicted and sentenced to 60 years. I think that's right. I think it was 60 years. Uh, horrible crime in 95 in Green Bay. Um, you know, unconvicted of the Avery case, he was left free and uh, mm-hmm. uh, of the PB case, I should say, and yeah, broke into a woman's home in Green Bay and brutally raped her. He's still in prison. Um, he had a parole hearing, I think, about a year ago, and uh, I made sure they knew that even though he wasn't convicted of the Avery case, um, they need to know that um, for various reasons he was clearly the assailant. Um, so, And would, um, this, would the statute have run on that? So they couldn't even try him with the DNA or charge him with the DNA. Well, it's something we had to face. By 2003. Right. A good question. And it is something we had to face. And we looked into it carefully and spoke with PB about it also. Um, Legally, um, 
there's no statute of limitations, of course, for murder, but attempted murder um, it doesn't count. Um, it's the usual six-year statute of limitations, just like at least it was at the time. Um, and the sex assault uh, statutes of limitations, when the offense occurred is the key, and it occurred in 1985. That was long before um, sort of the relaxed or more liberal rules um, giving longer uh, periods for the, the uh, statute of limitations on sex assault cases were in effect. So uh, it was the six-year statute of limitations. So there was no way to charge Gregory Allen um, once the DNA came back to him in 2003. It was also before those new DNA statutes, cold case hits mm -hmm. came out that allow uh, prosecution long after the statute of limitations. So we couldn't, and P uh, PB really wasn't um, wasn't interested at that point anyhow. Um, you can imagine what the defense would have been, too, had we tried to charge Gregory Allen. Um, you know, PB would be on the stand, and, and uh, a defense attorney would point out how she was she said she was completely certain it was Avery mm -hmm. at one point, you know. Yeah. So and it wouldn't have worked too well. You even mentioned that in Innocent Killer that her identification of Avery, even if they had uh released him and, and then found and charged Alan, her identification the way it was done might have you know, tanked any prosecution of Allen because then all the defense has to do is, but isn't this man you identified? This is not my client. Exactly. And so that created that created problems, even if the if they hadn't gone through prosecuting Avery. Right, right. Now it's the way her identification of Avery came out that was the problem. It it certainly doesn't excuse mm -hmm. them for not dismissing against Avery and going against Allen. But once the identification happened, and this gets really sort of fact-intensive and detail-oriented too, so I'm not sure how much it's worth, but um, if someone's manipulated into identifying somebody, it's not their fault that they make an identification. But what happens... Um, because of the of the the identification itself it's it's impossible to succeed or pretty much impossible to succeed if you go back and charge the right person um i mean they mm -hmm. they brought an artist sketch in who basically looked at an old mugshot of Avery and uh, that turns out to look almost identical to the composite sketch, even though Avery, even right. the older mugshot, Avery didn't look like that at the time of the assault. Um, and the entire way it was done um, suggests that, uh, and that's the way the mind works. Once you kind of see an image of somebody who you think's been an assailant, especially right away after a traumatic event like that, that becomes the assailant in your mind. So it wasn't Correct. very hard to understand how Penny would pick out a photo of uh, Avery, especially the way photo arrays were done back then, really suggestive. 
and yeah, at that point, the you know the uh, it's sort of baked into the the cake already that there's an identification that's out there, and then to go back and get the right person would be tough. But obviously, that's what would be required if you're serious about doing justice. You, you certainly right. have to, at the very least, dismiss it once you find out uh, the the charged person did not do the crime. And then you deal with whether or not you, you have enough or whether you want to try to go forward against the real assailant. Correct. And I also want to point out for listeners, because I know you've, you've had some blowback since making a, making a Murderer on your Amazon pages and social media, but when those DNA results came in, you and the DA at the time, Mr. Rohr, uh, you did not have Mr. Avery present all these all this evidence at a hearing. You did not have him file a motion for new trial. You basically, once the DNA was confirmed, your office got the order to Judge Hazelwood to release Mr. Avery immediately. Well, you've missed a really important step there. That took oh, a I'm sorry. Days. That's all right. That's all right. There were two days uh, intervening from when we got the evidence about the DNA and the hair to when we decided that Avery had to be released. And during those two days, we spent... I don't know, I probably spent 18 hours out of each of those two days uh, going through trial transcripts and police reports and meticulously figuring out if somehow, even though the DNA came back on the hair to this other assailant who had tried to do the same thing to another woman in the area and was being Mm -hmm. tailed by police and actually fit the description much better than Avery, and even though Avery had 16 alibi witnesses, et cetera, et cetera, if somehow Avery was still guilty, because the last thing we wanted to do as prosecutors or as anybody in the system, I would hope, uh, wanted to do is release somebody who had committed this crime and whose conviction was upheld twice after a jury found him guilty. So, no, we didn't just sort of willy-nilly say, oh, DNA says it's... Uh, oh, no, no. Alan. You know, so we really wanted to make sure, and at that point, yeah, we thought this is not something um, that, you know, justice suggests that we have them go through a hearing um, and that we would argue that somehow he might still be guilty. I mean, it was as clear as it gets. So more importantly to us, or equally importantly, I guess, it wasn't only clear that Avery didn't do it and that Alan did, but it was getting increasingly clear that it looked like the police, at least the sheriff and maybe one or two other people at the sheriff's department knew that Avery didn't do it and that the DA at the time uh, two DAs earlier knew and went ahead and prosecuted him anyhow. So we had to refer us to the Attorney General for an independent review. Correct. And 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 to go back a little bit, that you two and I, I remember reading that you split up the file and you took part and you took part, but you took that burden on yourselves. You know, you didn't say, okay, well, y'all do what you have to do 
and file a motion for new trial and set an evidentiary hearing, which might take weeks or months. Right. You know, you all did it in a very quick, expedient way to to be sure that you were going to be doing the right thing, and then you you got on with doing the right thing. Yeah, we where you still could have said we could have. You're right. You, we yeah. could have delayed it for probably another two, three, four months or longer by the time motions get set and judges make mm-hmm. this and briefs are filed. But it was it was it was clear, you know, that that was not the right thing to do in this case. That when evidence is as clear as it was here and the injustice was, you know, as great as it was here, 18 years, well, actually 12 years that he wouldn't have spent because six of those years were spent uh, for a crime he really did commit. Uh, and On the SM. The SM case, yeah. But, you know, somebody spending 12 extra years in prison um, should, should uh, at the very least, be freed as soon as practicable uh, once it's it's determined, um, you know, very very thoroughly that um, he's innocent, and so that's what we did. Um, right. Yeah. And you you and Mr. Roar deserve credit for for handling it that way, well, rather I would than hope most DAs do. But because I appreciate the that. burden right, is on them. Would yeah. You know, the burden is on the convicted person. It absolutely uh, procedurally, mm-hmm. you know. Right. So um, this was not per procedure. Well, they would have met their burden really easily. Um, I think oh, yeah. any reasonable trial judge would have found, based on the evidence, that the conviction um, had to be reversed. And uh, correct. So. But you are absolutely correct that uh, there are plenty of prosecutors in in the country and elsewhere that would uh, dig their heels in and say, prove it. Um, and, of course, the burden should be on a convicted defendant uh, <laughs> to have a conviction reversed, you know, that mm-hmm. you no longer are presumed innocent, obviously, once you're convicted, and the burden should be on them, Um and that's, of course, going on right now uh, in Avery's, in the second case, in the murder case, it's Ms. Ms. Zellner's burden um, to explain Correct. to the court why Mr. Avery should be entitled to a new trial. It's not the state's burden to, you know, continuously prove uh, that, that he's, he's guilty. guilty. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think we've kind of covered all the, all the little uh, things on the... Uh, outline up to I think um, on the AG investigation and and again I I appreciate in uh, Innocent Killer that you don't mince words you know if you don't agree with it you say very clearly what you disagree with and why you didn't make excuses for the sheriff or the DA or the court or the trial or you said, you know, they didn't have enough evidence. I can't believe he was convicted at one point. Because to you, the evidence did not stand up. It's interesting that Manitowoc County did not plant evidence in PB's assault that would have corroborated her identification or strengthened 
the case against Avery, especially yeah. in light of the allegations about this 2005 case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, planting evidence um, takes a, uh, goes another couple steps to me uh, that if you think of a police officer actually doing that, that, that involves, uh, you know, it's obstruction of justice. It's clear-cut mm-hmm. criminal activity um, and should be punished really severely um, if it's ever found to have happened, and it has been found to have happened. Uh, Chicago comes to mind, uh, hour and a half down the road. Um, well, no, yeah. I'm, uh, three hours down the road, hour and a half from Milwaukee. Three hours I'm, over, huh? Yeah, well, it's uh, I grew up in Milwaukee, so it's an hour and a half straight south, and now it's three hours straight south because we're an hour and a half from from uh, from Milwaukee. Okay. Might as well be a million miles away. I mean, this is Manitowoc, and that's Chicago. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, they, um, you know, I don't think the sheriff and the DA in 1985 think they did anything wrong. They certainly don't think they did anything criminally wrong, like. They would know they did if they planted evidence. Frankly, it's just as bad. Um, you know, DAs don't usually go around planting evidence, but if a DA knows somebody is innocent, and there are people that obviously disagree with that, um, there's a few redditors out there on the so-called guilter side who um, who think that I'm equally a, a have an agenda against the police for the 85 case, which is really interesting. But, uh, but, uh, well, I, you, you have your, you have your opinion and, you know, you have been working as a prosecutor for more than 20 years. Yeah. And you're entitled to your opinion and you're entitled to judge Dennis Vogel or anyone else by how the, they should have handled the case. Yeah, and I try in the book to you know understand where they may have been coming from, and um, you know what were they thinking, and did they think uh, it, it maybe it wasn't that bad of a thing to do because he was dangerous and. If he didn't do this one, maybe he he would do something else. And no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't I couldn't end up thinking this was anything other than really serious misconduct against them. I mean, that's not to judge. You know, I, I, we're not supposed to you know judge another person exactly. But what, when you judge what they did, and I think it's important in the justice system to call an injustice out really loud and clear if you're involved in this kind of system um, and to not shy away from it. And um, I, I, I didn't like that part of it. I mean, these are people in the community where I live and the newspaper here didn't like what I was doing and had some articles, uh, you know, kind of taking me to task for it. But if you really look through the evidence, I think it's hard to not conclude that they knew. And I don't think we should just kind of turn a blind eye on that like the attorney general did in her independent review. Um, 
So yeah, I I I don't want to sit here and um, and say these are bad people. You know, I don't think we get anywhere with that. They're they probably in many ways good people too. You know, we're all kind of a right. But what they did was some serious injustice, and what it did to Avery and his family. I you know. Yeah, he he had committed some crimes, uh, serious crimes in the past, and he should be punished for those. But he had a family, and he is uh, a human being with the right not to be thrown in prison for something he didn't do. Uh, right. it, it goes to the very heart of the system. So, yeah, I guess that's why when people say, why are you hung up on that case? That's why I'm hung up on that case. Um but I've been becoming more and more hung up on, of course, the second case because they're right. That's the one that's relevant now, and uh, and I'm almost as outraged uh, by by what um, what what a fiasco making a murderer uh, in Hollywood have made of um, the truth and justice in this case and the damage that they've caused to people and kind of an arrogance um, that they've uh, used and uh, exhibited in determining for the rest of the country what happened here by a pretty slick uh, piece of propaganda. And, Correct. Uh, and it's it's caused a, a a lot of upheaval locally and especially with certain people. Um, so those people are right. That's where we're at now, I guess. Um, the new case, Correct. and not so much the old case. Correct. And uh, I think kind of tonight we're going to kind of tangentially approach the 2005 case. Um. And then, of course, we're going to go a little bit more in depth next week with Mr. Kratz uh, on the meat and potatoes of that case. But on on this one, you have an interesting insight because you testified in the 2004 civil suit that Avery had filed against Manitowoc County, Kosorik, and Vogel. And the interesting thing... You were deposed, correct, Um, as a witness, not as a party or any involvement. Um, But the interesting thing is they claim pretty uh, often in making a murderer that that civil suit is the whole purpose behind framing Stephen Avery for Teresa Halbuck's murder. So, uh, on the on the 2004 suit, um, let's see, he was suing for the wrongful imprisonment, violation of civil rights, mental anguish, emotional distress, the whole laundry list. Yep, thirty-six million under Section 1983. Right, thirty and, right. and and thirty-six million dollars, but unfortunately. Um, 1983 is not the big money award statute. <laughs> Usually you don't get anything with 1983 cases. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But well, uh, I'm pretty certain he would have got a good amount. He wouldn't have gotten thirty-six probably, million, but probably. it was it was worth. Uh, lawyers like Steve Glenn and Walt Kelly don't spend you know months of their time. Oh no! If there's not a, a pot at the end of the rainbow, so he he wouldn't have got anywhere near thirty-six million. But right. it's nonsense that that yeah. motivated police. Uh, to plant evidence. It's pure nonsense. First of all, Colbert and Link were not parties uh, to the lawsuit. They were witnesses. Correct. They, they were Correct. as straight as it gets. And witnesses, too. They, and they, they had nothing to do. They weren't even at Manitowoc in 1985. No, they weren't. They weren't. Uh, Colbert was in the armed services, the Marines, I think. Link, I think, was a police officer in Detroit or somewhere in Michigan. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't even work or live here in Manitowoc County in 1985. Right. And Link's only connection was Andy, Col- Mr. Uh, Andrew Colburn, Sergeant Colburn, came to him in 2003 and said, you know, in 95, I got a phone call from a detective in Brown County. And he said they had a guy who said he raped a woman in Manitowoc and somebody else was convicted. Right. And as I recall, even in the deposition, that was the substance of the phone call. That, that was it. Sergeant Colburn yeah, it transferred to a detective. Correct. Correct. There was no name mentioned even as far as uh, Officer Colburn recalled. And even if there was, the name Stephen Avery... Uh, or at least this assault would have meant nothing to him. He was a corrections officer. Um, Correct. And he did what, uh, and he testified he did, both I believe at the trial and I know in his deposition, he said he did what any CO would do with that circumstance, which was transfer the call to the detective division, which is the area, the investigators, uh, who would be responsible for looking into that. And, in fact, he made certain to give the Brown County detective uh, the telephone number for the detective division uh, in Manitowoc in case, you know, the call didn't go through or, or the uh, right. or the uh, it went to voicemail or it wasn't picked up. So... Yeah, somehow out of that happenstance, Colburn working, I think, first shift as he did as a corrections officer in the jail, probably a detective in Brown County who was trying to get a hold of somebody, but you know how that is, uh, trying to mm-hmm. call the sheriff's department and get to the right person, is probably just going down the list at some point and not getting through and ends up uh, calling the jail and Lo and behold, Andy Colburn picks up the cause as, as a corrections officer and does what he should do with the cause. Somehow out of that, Colburn gets wrapped into this by the uh, by the creators of Making a Murderer, I think because it, it makes a good arc to their storyline. You know, I, you I think that they believe... The corruption earlier. They believe that he had some duty in 1995 to write a report and then get somebody to look into Stephen Avery's case. Even though he didn't have Stephen Avery's name or Gregory Allen's name. Another interesting question that I had um, with the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office is that like two separate arms. There's the jail arm and the 
law enforcement arm. It is. They're different divisions. They do different jobs, and they they don't they don't cross each other. In other words, in the jail, they know the people that are coming in the jail, but the law enforcement don't know them unless they arrest them on the streets. Well, I'm not going to say, and I don't think you're suggesting that there's no, you know, obviously there's interaction between the people that work at the sheriff's department and the people that work at the jail, but not that much. Um, the, you're absolutely right. The people that are employed by the jail and like Coburn was back then, a corrections officer, first of all, they're not sworn law enforcement officers. They have no authority uh, in fact, they'd get in trouble if they try to investigate any kind of crime, much less one that's, you know, 10 years old where there's a conviction. Okay. Um, and they, their authority is within the jail. That's it. Um, and, you know, this kind of call um, isn't the kind of thing, and I think the filmmakers knew this, um, it's not the kind of thing, if you think about it, that would lead to, uh, any corrections officer to to draft a separate report as an incident report. They're they're going mm-hmm. about their business, doing their job. They have no reason to think that this is some that there's any truth to this. They have no idea about the veracity of it. Their job is to send it to where the information must go. And in this case, right. that was the detective division. And apparently, Paul did eventually go to where it must go. Um, because word came down that uh, and the detective in Green Bay was told um, falsely, I believe, by either Jean Couchet, who uh, was involved in the artist sketch, or maybe Kucerich, the sheriff himself, that, no, can't be, we got the right guy, it's Avery. So, uh, no, it's just nonsense that Colburn should have done some kind of report or followed up in this. You get all kinds right. of calls, uh, you know, and you happen to pick up a call. I, I, believe, he, I believe he testified at the trial, uh, well, why didn't you write a report? Because I'd be writing reports all day if I wrote a report for every call. I'd do yeah. nothing but write reports. Right. Yeah, well, that's true. It's <laughs> very true. And I mean, not to make completely make light of it, because it's not every day somebody calls and says, hey, there might be, you know, somebody in jail that so should be wrongly convicted. But yeah, it's not an everyday call. But on the other hand, you get, you know, you may get all kinds of different calls. You know, somebody who says that, uh, you know, they heard... Um, well, you can you can imagine the different kind of scenarios that could come mm-hmm. up, uh, and frankly, they probably don't uh, they don't follow up on on uh, anything other than what occurs right in their jail. That's what they're uh, hired to do. That's that's their responsibility, and uh, it's not to to investigate crimes. So I think he did exactly what he should have done. And, sent the call, right. forwarded the call to the sheriff's department, uh, the other department or agency within the sheriff's department, division is the word I'm looking for, right. and gave the and number, then, the exact number. And then he recalled in 2003, and that, although that was kind of interesting that he he recalled it in 2003 and went to Lank, and Lank said, go ahead and write a report. Do you have well, any background on on yeah. why or how 
Yeah. It seems nefarious in making a murderer. Well, you can make anything almost seem nefarious, <laughs> but I, I, I think what my understanding of what happened is the sheriff, actually Ken Peterson, um, at, directed Colburn once Colburn um, kind of put it together that I wonder, you know, if that is he didn't right. get it. I wonder if maybe it was that case, yeah. And you can imagine we were all, including in our office, very concerned about making sure um, that all the information was documented that we knew about in terms of how the 85 wrongful conviction happened because we knew we were going to be uh, uh, seeking the help of the attorney general uh, in conducting conducting an independent review. We, we're not in a position mm-hmm. to review what happened ourselves. It's our agency. It's the DAs and the sheriff's department. So it had to go outside. And um, and it's important whenever that happens, anybody who works in any kind of law enforcement or public agency or, or any other uh, agency, I would think, when something like this happens, would want to make sure that things are carefully documented so somebody else can find out what happened when and who knew what, et cetera. So that was the impetus for Colburn uh, writing the memo. He was directed to do it, and uh, and it made sense. Um, Correct. Yeah. It's funny how these things and, can be twisted, though, uh, completely said. If they were trying to hide something, then that memo just never would have been written. And so Avery's attorneys never would have even known about it. Exactly. <laughs> you know, if they, I mean, and Sheriff Peterson, he was uh, on the Manitowoc force at the time of the 1985 investigation, but he was maybe peripherally involved, but not. Uh, at first, Sheriff Kaserik seems to have been the one that spearheaded the entire thing, he which was. was unusual and yep. was not how it should have been handled. Absolutely not. Um, there was a personal friendship or at least uh, acquaintance, and more than an acquaintance. I think they, they maybe went to the same church or lived down the street or something, PB mm-hmm. and the sheriff. So he, and he knew PB's husband and, you know, these were fairly prominent people in the community and um, whether like it or not, those people tend to or can um, get a little bit more attention from law enforcement. Correct. Which he, is another he, problem. It shouldn't happen. He, Everybody should get the same amount of attention. Yeah. Yeah. He, Peterson he himself. He, yeah. Kaserik should have stayed he, out of it completely. He, he, he should have stood by for moral support because he didn't have any yeah. objectivity. You're right. I completely agree. And he didn't know investigations at that point. He had been out of that kind of work for you know, many years, and um, mm. he was an administrator. It, it's a bigger county than most people think, so he had no business uh, leading up right. an investigation like this. Yeah. Now, Peterson, you were about to say something. I apologize for interrupting you. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, well, just that Peterson's role was to be one of the police that Kucerik directed uh, the night Penny was assaulted after she uh, identified him after the composite sketch to go arrest Avery. So Peterson, okay. and I think it was four or five uh, other officers who were on duty 
you know, night shift on duty, we're told, um, you know, this guy assaulted somebody, we're going to make an arrest, um, do it as a high-risk arrest, because it was Avery and they knew he had guns from the earlier, uh, the SM case, as you've uh, uh, detailed it or characterized it, um, with the car, the ramming of Avery's car. So that was Peterson's role in it. he was not a. Uh, he did not continue in the investigation of the PV case. He was very peripherally involved, and Beyond as that. you pointed out, Colbert wasn't even here, and Link wasn't even here. Right. Uh, yeah. And Avery's uncle Arland was a deputy with the sheriff's office, and he went along because if he didn't go along, SWAT was going to be going, and and he wanted to. Ensure that the Lori, the wife, and, and kids stayed safe. Right. That's Stephen's uncle, Ireland Avery. There's an awful lot of connections here with with Avery and the sheriff's department. Um, the victim of his pending crime was the wife of a, I of think a, a reserve sheriff. deputy at the time. Yeah. Um, but then and yeah, friends with Ar- Judy Dvorak, another reserve deputy. Right. Yeah. So there's, it's this little area in the north end of the county um, where they all lived, and many of them knew each other. Um, and you know, a lot of, a, a lot of uh, things kind of came together to make um, for the the wrongful conviction case. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, the police corruption made it go, but the beginning of it, I think, was was what you were talking about that Avery was on their radar for for a pretty a very serious uh incident where the victim was a reserve deputy's wife and Correct. then the re- first responding officer officer Dvorak um both knew about Avery and couldn't stand Avery um Why? and also really kind of over involved herself personally, and maybe this is another lesson of the first Avery case, uh, over-involves herself personally with the victim, um, with PB. Um, she, mm-hmm. she, you know, in a human way, felt horrible for what happened. She brought flowers to uh, PB in the hospital the next morning, and you know what we today would view as really sort of unprofessional con- uh, conduct. You know, it's not. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong. You know, morally about it, it's great, but there needs to be some distance. And I think the right. first deputy is the one who blurted out basically. It sounds like Stephen Avery. You know, when when mm-hmm. PB gave a very very vague description, you know, a guy with medium length hair with a, a beard was basically a yeah. um and um that somehow Avery got to be the guy. I do want to point out though the the mention in Making a Murder and I think you've mentioned it, the hair. The hair in the January uh mugshot is all you know, it looks like it's been teased up or he stuck his finger in a light socket or something. Right. And then the July hair is like you put a bowl on his head to let his hair dry. Right. But right. businessmen tend to wear one hairstyle from about age 18, and it never changes. Same length, same style. Mm-hmm. 
he could have changed his hair within hours, theoretically. You know, he could have had it teased up to go to the lake and then, you know, got it wet and fold it down when he got home around other people. Um, so changing a hairstyle or a hair look is not is not an impossible task. Women do it all the time. Yeah. No, I'm sure it's not, but we know Avery wasn't um, the assailant in 1985. Right. I, I, I'm just, I, I just, you know, I pick on things, I see things like that saying, yeah. well, it's ridiculous. The hair is totally different. You know, hair can be changed. Well, that's true. I, I don't think, I don't think, um, I don't think Louisiana even puts hair color on driver's licenses anymore. Mm-hmm. Because hair color can change. Well, that's, hair that's color really can be true. Changed. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, blonde so. you know, one day and brunette the next, and correct. And then and then a redhead when you try to go back to go back right. to blonde. Right. Right. Or Bonnie yeah. Franklin Orange. Um, <laughs> That worked too. But um, yeah, I just let mine go gray. I guess I, I do too. Um, <laughs> what's the point? You know, it's at a, a certain point in life. Uh, it is what it is, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So really, you know, uh, uh, Sheriff Peterson, Colburn, Sergeant Colburn, and Lieutenant Link, none of them would have a motive. They weren't parties to the lawsuit. They weren't uh, involved in the investigation in 1985, so they weren't being accused of any wrongdoing or or any violations. No. Um, so they would really have no reason to want to frame Stephen Avery to try to derail his lawsuit. No, I think what they what you know they tried to 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 suggest that because Colburn should have written a, a statement in 1995 um and then they of course they added the the twist that um that statement and this is completely false as well was kept in a safe from 2003 uh they yeah. tried to hide it, and they didn't try to hide it. That's a totally different document. But the claim, yeah. right? Their claim, uh, what they tried to suggest, I guess, is that that means that Colburn knew that way back in '95 uh, that Avery was innocent because maybe other people in the sheriff's department told him. It's pure speculation what they're trying to do, but that's what mm-hmm. they do. Um, and they covered it up. That's why he didn't write a report, and that's why when the exoneration happened, he wrote one, but it was just kind of a CYA memo or something and was hidden. Um, so that And it wasn't hidden because the attorneys got it. It wasn't the the document in the safe was by Kasorik, and it was an inmate who claimed that Avery confessed to PB's rape. Yeah, it's so convoluted, and it's been made more convoluted by making a murder. <laughs> what they what, what they did is they took uh, Steve Glenn's mistake, mistaken impression, and because okay. it, just it, that that Colburn's memo 
was the document that was left in Kucerich's safe. It wasn't. There's absolutely no question that the actual document in Sheriff's safe was something else. It was related to the Avery case. It was it was a um, yeah, it was a letter or a statement from an inmate, actually an affidavit of Avery's uh, cellmate from I think sometime in 1990, maybe, uh, who claimed that Avery admitted to him that he committed the assault on the beach of PB, and Avery probably did. I mean, you know, people talk tough, and if you're if you're uh, mm-hmm. If is if you want to you know let fellow inmates know you're tough, you you act tough and you say you assaulted this blah blah blah. And, uh, so I think sheriff was uh, Kosarek was likely keeping it as kind of a you know in his insurance. back pocket in case insurance yeah in his back pocket in case uh, it ever came out that Avery didn't do it. That's the way I viewed it anyhow. Um, but Steve Glenn was mistaken about that, Avery's attorney in the wrongful conviction lawsuit, uh, both in a deposition and in an interview he did with uh, the filmmakers. And they took okay. that to lead to this false per, uh, perception among people that 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 Colburn's written statement about the uh, 95 call was being hidden. Was being hidden, yeah. So that's how they sort of, I guess, get to this, to to suggesting that Colburn was part of a cover-up and therefore Mm -hmm. had reason to plant evidence. It's all a big storyline, I think. And a a storyline has to have an arc. You know, it has to have a beginning where you kind of raise tension and then a conflict and and then the conflict is resolved, and you need to tie the old case to the new case under their storyline, um, and it needs an arc, and the arc they picked um, was Colburn, you know, because at least they had something to kind of hang on to if they could manipulate it enough, mm-hmm. the 95 Correct. call. Um, boy, it's right. a funny thing to pick to 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 uh, lynch your conspiracy theory on though, a call that you happen to answer as a corrections officer gets to be the linchpin of this conspiracy that's now... Nine years after a wrongful conviction happened. Right. By someone who wasn't involved in the original investigation. Exactly. Who who probably never heard of Manitowoc back then. I I think what, what Stephen Avery and perhaps his family and perhaps a lot of viewers and maybe even the makers of making, making a murderer don't realize is that civil suit was not an easy thing because what he had to prove was intent, knowledge. And while those are all provable by circumstantial evidence, circumstantial evidence also can be explained well, any loss and sometimes hinges you know, on yeah. credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he was gonna he was gonna bear the burden of proof, and he was not gonna have an easy time. As I said, he likely would have proved something, mm-hmm. perhaps not as much as he claimed. For example, the the safe and and a mistake like that by Glenn uh, could have damage the credibility of the whole plaintiff's case. 
Well, they, they, um, Glenn and From Kelly. From a Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it, you know, nothing is um, slam dunk in law. You can't guarantee anything, but they, they feel they had a pretty strong case. And the burden is high, you know, in a civil rights action against the government. It's not enough to show negligence. But I I think they, um, and it's just my view of it, you know, and um, I think most people, though, would agree that th- there was likely going to be uh, a pretty decent award um, most likely through a settlement offer, the county and the insurance carriers especially um, wouldn't have wanted to risk uh, what happened. Because you have to remember, Avery was kind of a folk hero at the time, too. It was a highly public mm-hmm. It was the first exoneration in Wisconsin. And the legislature had uh, had embraced him, and the state had, the media had, too. Um, as as the kind of the uh, the the uh, poster boy or whatever of wrongful convictions, and he inspired, or they had him inspire. Uh, they used his story to inspire a, a reform, criminal justice reform. So mm-hmm. Avery was in a pretty good position, and they did have some pretty damning facts against uh, against Kucerich and Vogel. And I think they would have ended up with with a good settlement. There's no way of knowing for sure, given what happened. Right. Um, but and wasn't you know, the there, there wasn't there a proposal? Wasn't there a proposal for a bill to give him like four hundred fifty thousand dollars? Yeah, there was a separate um, exoneration uh, restitution. Uh, law in effect, and there always has been in Wisconsin, and most states have it, wrongful conviction awards, basically. That's just statutory. It comes from the state. Okay. Yeah. And it was it was really minimal. I think it was, uh, they had agreed to go over the limits, but the limits themselves would have been only, I don't know if he would have got, you know, $100,000 for 18 years or oh. something. Oh. Uh, but okay. they they agreed to exceed that. I think four hundred fifty or something. But um, he was going to get a lot more than that in a civil lawsuit. I, I don't think anybody really doubts that. But it wasn't going to be thirty six million. It probably wasn't going to be ten million. Um, and there was coverage, um, plenty of coverage uh, mm. to, to uh, handle insurance coverage. So. The county okay. uh, was not going to be on the hook financially. Certainly the sheriff's department and certainly Colburn and Link, they weren't even parties, uh, were not mm-hmm. going to be on the hook financially. Um, there's been a lot of misinformation about that, too. Um, there was one party's insurance carrier who tried to claim, uh, I think it was Kucerich's insurance carrier, might have tried to uh, claim uh that they're not responsible because it wasn't an act of negligence alleged. It was intent. But the county's insurer, and that was the big one, didn't even suggest that. They admitted they've, okay. got, they've got coverage. They'll cover. So there was no risk, financial risk, to the county. Um, you know, Even, given, even if there was a judgment in Avery's favor. Correct. Yeah, this wasn't a... a going to be a, a financial burden on the county. Okay. Now, again, so some, there's no 
there's no motive to derail the lawsuit by framing Stephen Avery. Because, no. again, the, the, the county, it, it's not going to be out of their pocket. It's their insurance, which they pay for. Right. So. They could say, well, they were embarrassed by it, but they had already been embarrassed by it. You know, so what right. would, that what that doesn't really work. Um, that horse was gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, <laughs> I, I again, there has to be a storyline or an arc to the yeah. story, and and so they have to come up with some motive for for the police um, to plan and, evidence to frame Avery. And in reading the AG's opinion. Mm-hmm. What came to my mind as I read it was someone was thinking about liability, either for the state or the county. Mm-hmm. They were I, they were trying to, you know, criticize without saying there was negligence or criminal or or, or ethic, uh, unethical behavior. Mm-hmm. It was a strange report, wasn't it? The body of the report itself read yes. horribly in terms of you know, really <laughs> severe instances of police misconduct. And then you get to the conclusion, mm-hmm. and it's it's it basically is you know oh. milk toast. Oh, they kind of made a mistake, and they should have kept an open mind and communicated better. Right. It, 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 Although I did. It, I did notice that the information about Gregory Allen and other potential suspects was provided to the defense. Yeah, um, that's according to the AG report. Um, and Correct. And what information, that, you know, how that it was. That was based on. <laughs> yeah, whether it was in the middle of um, a couple reports from prior incidents stuck in the middle of you know, um, uh, six inches of documents or what? Um, I don't know. I, I, okay. I, I question, um, I guess maybe the, the lawyers who represented Avery in the first place, I know one of them said to the AG that no, he did not have those reports. So I'm not sure okay. when those documents got in the defense uh, file and when they didn't, but the uh, the basic point is is though that the AG sort of whitewashed the report and that was frustrating right. to us, very frustrating to me, um, and the DA. Uh, we thought it was ridiculous. Uh, from what we knew, um, they blamed it just on kind of closed-mindedness and you know not keeping it not open sharing. Mind. And not sharing information, information. Yeah. and and it it's right. just I don't think it was for liability in terms of financial liability they were worried about. I think the AG I, I don't know this, but you know in Wisconsin the Attorney mm-hmm. General in most places they're they're pretty closely associated with police on a local level too. They're the you know top law enforcement agency of the state and. Uh, I think the AG's husband at the time was a uh, a detective or a former detective yeah. in some other agency, and the AG herself used to be a DA in a county, three or four counties to the west of here. And you know, it it's kind of just occurred to me. 
I, I think I know exactly what they were thinking. Anybody investigated by Manawak and anybody tried and convicted by Vogel might try to use a negative report by the AG as grounds for post-conviction and new trials. Well, I mean, they... Whether that's realistic or not, that may have been what somebody was thinking about, but... Who knows? I think the politicos got a hold of it. I don't think it was because that you're right. You know, you can try to suggest that that it's somehow exculpatory or uh, goes to the credibility, but it wouldn't go anywhere unless it involved the specific police officers on that case. So you'd have to show, you know, the Kucerec, uh or maybe Couchet, um credibility is now at issue because of what happened in the Avery case and it's really remote not a realistic uh, threat Um, I I don't know what sometimes defense attorneys they'll take what they can get well they don't have much right so they can (laughs) take what they can get Um, but yeah they will I really think though it's more of a political decision and a pretty a pretty lousy political decision um, where it's kind of protecting uh, law enforcement, you know, and um, if, if law and support, if you, a big part of your support when you're running for office are cops and, um, and there's some political uh, weight behind them, unfortunately you might, if you don't, um, look at things objectively off. yeah and there's no excuse for that either if that's what happened unless they honestly believed after looking at all those facts um, that there was no type of misconduct here no you know nothing more serious than just poor police work um, I, most people who read that report and then read the conclusion uh can square the report with the conclusion, though. They think that the AG, just for whatever reason, um, didn't want to come down hard on Kucerich and Vogel. Yeah. All right. So we we are at October 31st, 2005, and uh, a photographer... uh, more or less freelance photographer named Teresa Halbach, who is from Calumet County, uh, travels into Manitowoc County to photograph a vehicle or a couple of vehicles. Because I think there was a stop before Avery's in um, the same general area. Yeah, there were two places, the George Zipper residence Mm -hmm. and Avery Salvage Yard. Yeah. But one thing that's always been kind of uh, significant to me is that uh, we know earlier in October, Teresa had had an unsettling experience Mm -hmm. and had expressed a... Uh, desire not to ever go back to Avery's. I think she had certainly expressed, um, 
you put it well that it was an unsettling experience. Um, he had approached her wearing just a towel, you know, and this is our mm-hmm. old time of year wrapped around his waist, and she was mm-hmm. sort of creeped out by it. Um, she may have expressed that she never wanted to go back there. I'm not sure if she was quite that explicit, um, but there was no question she was, um, you know, she was unsettled by what had happened earlier. That's right. Correct. And then when he calls in to schedule the the visit on the 31st, he gives the name B. Yonda, mm-hmm. which is his sister's, and her phone number. Mm-hmm. And he uses call blocking to block his phone number from her caller ID. Right. Star 67. So, yeah, and not only that, he he's he's purporting to sell her car that she didn't right. want to have sold. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Now, I, you know, I I I realize um later in Making Murder uh with Kathleen Zellner, they try to minimize that information and perhaps Ms. Zellner just brands it all lies, damn lies. But in Making a Murderer 1, that's not even really mentioned. No. Um, no, they they left out, um, I, I don't think the they... The circumstances. Uh, yeah, they, they, they hit the basics, but it's how you portray it. And, um, you know... Leaving the name B Yanda um, obviously is is who, what's B could be a man or a woman, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it's a different phone number. So, is it is it proof that um, Avery was trying to lure her there, Teresa, to his place? It's not, you know, it's nothing you could hang your hat on um, as, you know. Uh, smoking gun proof for murder, but it's certainly relevant to it and should be included in any kind of fair, uh, objective, you know, evidence. To me, <laughs> it, it it is a fact. I mean, it 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 has it it is an established fact that he blocked his number. He used Barb's number. He used Barb's last name and her first initial. Now, and, while she may have recognized the address, she did not know she was going to see Stephen Avery when she got there. Right. And why? And that is all. That? Those are established why? facts. And exactly. why would he do that? Is the question. And why would he, in the first place, insist that his sister's car be put up for sale when his sister doesn't want to put up her car for sale and argued about mm-hmm. with him? And you know what? I think you, have you to think through all these things, and it doesn't make I, sense. I started reading Indefensible as well, and I think you mentioned there were cars for sale at the front of the property. So why would he want her to come back to photograph Barb's minivan? Yeah, I, and I, I don't. I, I think that's something too that's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, the location An interesting of, circumstance. of where it was. I think you're right on that, too, um, uh, where her vehicle was. Uh, generally, there's not, um, 
you know, it's a salvage yard. There's junk cars all over it. They don't, they don't actually sell vehicles there. Um, he was going to have a picture taken of it and then have the photo. At least that's what he was suggesting he was going to do. You know, have the photo shown in this car trader magazine, the perspective. Box. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought I, I I thought I read. I may be confusing a Reddit post. I don't know. I've been reading so much the past couple weeks. Well, I think the um, location were, of you know, where he yeah you know, vehicles at the front of the uh, at the front of the lot of the property that maybe they had fixed up and that were ready to sail. That was yeah. the or, impression or I thought. Yeah, it may have been that in the past um, she or others from that place had taken photos of uh, vehicles that were located toward the front, and this one wasn't. Her her Barb's vehicle that um, Teresa took a picture of was closer to to Avery's place. Her trailer's right Correct. across Avery's trailer. Right. So he got her very close to where he lives. Correct. And then um, that's she vanishes. She drives onto the Avery property, and nobody hears from her after like two forty. 2.30, in the afternoon on October 31st. Right. And nobody sees her or hears from her on the Tuesday or Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Thursday, her mother reports her missing because I think her business partner called mom and said, have you talked to Teresa? Where is she? Right, and Teresa's mom was wondering by this time. Anyhow, I, you know, uh, she didn't live in the same house, but she kept in pretty close right. contact with her mom. And several days had gone by, and she hadn't heard from her. So, which she was, her and she was a twenty-five, she was a twenty-five-year-old woman, and she had her own independent life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she's not, you know, she wasn't due home on October thirty-first at 6 o'clock for dinner, although I thought she did have plans with somebody on October 31st later in the evening. there was some discussion, yeah, about maybe going to a a Halloween party or something or going out that night. But in any event, it doesn't matter much. The the bottom line is she hadn't been seen uh, since the 31st. People got concerned and... uh, and No activity on her phone. Yeah, right. Yep. And that's that's another important thing, is that the disappearance was reported to Calumet County. Mm-hmm. And so they were really the first investigatory agency involved. Yes, because, in this of course, case. Teresa is from Calumet County. And, yeah, it was only after um, it became clear you know, when they were able to trace her assignments uh, with her job um, on that Monday, the 31st, to Manitowoc County, um, when Manitowoc County became involved after the Calumet County uh, Sheriff's Department called our county. And they were told that there were two places, not just one, two places that she had uh, had appointments to visit in Manitowoc, the Zipper residence and uh, the Avery Salvage Yard. Yes. And also an important thing I think to point out, because 
some people may not realize it, but <clears throat> when the when the investigation crossed into Manitowoc County, Calumet County would have to have at least Manitowoc's permission, if not Manitowoc's assistance, to investigate within Manitowoc County. Because well, yeah, both in, jurisdictions or, would work together at that point. And they would, well. right. But yeah. Calumet couldn't just, you know, drive into Manitowoc County and start interviewing people and doing whatever the heck they wanted no, to do. No, it I mean, would it's be, a courtesy yeah. right. to contact be, the yeah. resident agency and say, hello, can you help? Absolutely. That's, <laughs> that's complete, common, routine uh, procedure as to how that would work in any case. Correct, and nothing because nefarious. It's possible the crime occurred in the other county. So if you're if you're investigating something where the crime may have occurred, even if the victim's from your county and you started the investigation, yeah, it's it's a different jurisdiction, and Correct. they have to they have to be brought into the investigation at that point. Right, and and I think in in some. Uh, in some jurisdictions, I think in like in New Orleans, uh, NOPD officers do not have any authority outside the city of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Officially, mm-hmm. Jefferson Parish sheriff's deputies don't have any authority within the confines of the city of Gretna or within New Orleans. So I, I mean that's the way it, that's the way most law enforcement is uh, is is set up. Mm-hmm. And so the, you can't have one county go into another county without involving the county they're going into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you said, if if a crime did occur in the uh, guest county, then you need the guest county, and the guest county would be the county responsible for prosecuting it. So Right. Now, as I recall on the third... They interviewed a lot of people at Avery Salvage, and they got some different stories. Some said she left. Some said she didn't. Um, But that was pretty much they were able to establish that the last place she was was at Avery Salvage. Is that correct? They had checked both um, residences, Zipper residence, and they learned when she went there, and they spoke with George Zipper and I think his wife and um, they were told by them that she was there and she left and they had the times she left. She took the photo of the vehicle that they uh, were putting up for sale and she left and then uh, right it was established that she then went to um, Avery's and um, Mm -hmm. Avery gave of course many different versions himself about whether she was there um first denied, completely denied that she was there to I believe it was his brother um and then with police um after police found out from another person I don't remember which relative but that Teresa had indeed been there um Avery had to admit and he did admit yes she was there but I never had any contact with her I just saw her through the window, you know, his his trailer home window. Never talked to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, later his version changed to, oh, I guess yeah, I did go out and speak with her at 
the car I, uh, to arrange, you know, how much it was going to cost and to pay her. So uh-huh. um, Avery himself admitted that after a couple misleading statements, finally admitted to having contact with her um, at the salvage yard. Right. And so, and then some of, like I said, some of his relatives, and that's pretty much that compound is all Avery's or Avery relations. That's right. Yep. And Uh, then nearby, I I think there's another little enclave of Avery and Avery relations um, near where FM and her husband and, and, and Judy Dvorak had lived in 85. I don't know where Judy Dvorak lives now. Um, I, um, yeah, I, the Avery um, Avery Salvage Yard had, I think, four or five trailers and different families. Um, it's, it's basically it's Barb Stephen's sister, Barb uh, Yanda, um, mm-hmm. then Dassey lived there. Um, with her children. Stephen lived there, sometimes with his girlfriend, Jody Stokowski, in his own trailer. And then Stephen's parents um, lived in another trailer. I'm not sure where his brothers, Chuck and Earl, lived. Earl was married and Chuck was, so I assume they had their yeah. own trailers too. So, yeah, it's a um, it's it's a pretty you know good-sized area uh, with uh, a number of residences there. So and then nothing really happens on the fourth, and then on November fifth, private searchers, including a cousin of Teresa's, uh, they get permission from Earl Avery to enter the property to search. Mm-hmm. Uh, she and her daughter go to the back of the property, which actually makes a lot of sense in a in a in a salvage yard that size. Start at the back, work your way toward the front. Because well, I think it was 40 you, acres. Yeah, when you walk in where they would have gone in, and that is a straight shot back, so it does mm-hmm. make sense, yeah. Right. Well, I, as I recall from the trial footage, um, Mr. Beauty and Mr. Strang just thought that was a ridiculous choice, and you know how could she have found it so quickly without knowing it was there? Yeah. Well, they're doing their uh, that job. Was, that was their common commentary. Yeah, that, that was their theme. That this, and, you know, she knew and right, but there's nothing. And I had again nothing had surprising just, about how um, she found yeah. it. I mean, things can be I, manipulated I had, into just about anything. Um, I had just watched the map, and I I thought, well, that makes sense, because Mm -hmm. you go to the back, you work your way toward the front. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, it makes a lot more sense than starting at the front and working your way toward the back, because then you're in the back, and you just have to backtrack. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it it was, there's a dirt road that goes straight back there, and the Mm -hmm. car wasn't that far from that, um, the RAF. For, so and uh, but it it was also disguised. Well, it's it had branches and signs and, yeah. and a hood from um, another car, I think. Yeah. What? Well, yeah. And uh, 
the hadn't the battery been disconnected, but the battery had been left in the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. Now I I don't know if you found any of this in your research. Was it a RAV4 battery or was it a totally different battery for a totally different vehicle? Well, what is a RAV4 battery, right? If you've got a car, <laughs> if you have a vehicle that that's whatever it was, five or six years old, it, will, it may have the original, it may not. Making a murder too, as you probably know, is tried to make this claim, or Zellner has, and made right. a murder too, as mimicked Zellner, um, that it was the type of battery that uh, a lot of police vehicles had at the time. So therefore, further proof that the police must have okay. the car. Turns out it's but, not at all the case. Um, police around here didn't have that type of battery at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, there would be nothing unusual about that kind of battery being in in Teresa. Why? Right. And car. I I don't think a I don't think a uh I have a one of the smaller SUVs and uh a battery from a an you know an LTD or a Crown Victoria is not going to fit in my car. Mhm. It's too big. Mhm. It's the wrong dimensions. Yeah. And so not only would it not fit, but you couldn't hook it up and it wouldn't run the car. Because mm-hmm. yeah. I had to have AAA change my battery once. Mm-hmm. And when he opened my hood, he said, oh, boy, I hope that wasn't my last battery. <laughs> because he thought he was going to have to leave and go get a battery that would fit my car. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, you're lucky. I still have this one. Mm-hmm. So I have a triple bay. I have had to replace my original battery. Uh, twice in ten years. Yeah, and you're in which the isn't south. bad. No, it's not. I'm in the no, south, correct. In the north, yeah, yeah. After one winter, you have to replace your battery. Well, hopefully not after one, but certainly by the time you've had a car for six years, it's pretty likely you've replaced it. But um, oh, okay. Yeah, I would think the cold the cold weather does you know two three years probably. That's pretty much it. Yeah, you're right, actually. Yeah. But well, because like you have to go out in the morning and start your car to even be able to drive. Because you have well, to let the car it, warm up before. Quite, you know, we're not we're not quite in the tundra up here. Uh, it, it, depends. <laughs> <laughs> it, it depends. Um When you when I'm you get little... to ten or so or below, you need to start it and let it let it sit a while before you drive it. But the, the, it is about two or three or maybe four years um, before you replace uh, a battery. If, uh, I think but, four years if it's garaged. Mm-hmm. If it's out in the open, it's probably two years. Yeah, I, I don't know. I have family uh, in Delaware. I, I, yeah. <laughs> and it does get a little colder there, too. Mm-hmm. But, uh, no, I'm in Louisiana. 50 degrees is cold. We wear coats. And your batteries last for many years. Our batteries last. I mean, yeah, yeah, mine, like I said, I think I bought my car in 2008, and I replaced my first battery in 2011. Mm-hmm. And my second battery was 2017, but I had left my <coughs> lights on three times. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually didn't 
close the door all the way and the interior light stayed on all night. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> I'm more careful now. Yeah. And uh, once the RAV4 was discovered on their Avery pro- property, that is when um, Manitowoc County Sheriff and DA declared that they had a conflict of interest because of the lawsuit. And Calumet County Sheriff and DA assumed responsibility for the investigation and any prosecution. But there was also an agreement for Manitowoc to provide some resources. Right, and that, that agreement and that thinking that um, a conflict could be shielded by limiting um, Manitowoc's assistance was not a, a real smart decision um, because right. of the way it turned out. Uh, probably, you know, not foreseen, but... Well, definitely not foreseen, and maybe hard to foresee back then that uh, you know this case in the hands of some really good lawyers. Um, mm-hmm. Even if uh, there's a rule uh, or a procedure set in place where Manitowoc County officers can never be alone while they're involved in the investigation always have to be accompanied by another officer from another jurisdiction even with that um that could be uh easily turned on its head um in the hands of a couple of good attorneys with the history here so it wasn't a, a real wise decision and it wasn't wise at all frankly for the sheriff of Calumet County to tell the media that it's strictly to provide equipment because it wasn't. I don't know if that was Correct. the you know, initial um, uh, procedure that they were going to put in place or not, uh, but um, that wasn't what happened. Um, no. they, they didn't have evidence techs in Calumet County. It's a much smaller agency. We had a few evidence techs here. It's a real important position, a trained position that document um, in searches of residences or vehicles mm-hmm. where things are found, and they don't have the resources. Um, in, in fact, Man- Manitowoc and Calumet together didn't have resources enough to search this place. Um, there were troopers, right. state right. troopers. There were DCI agents from the state police. Uh, I think there are right. a few other jurisdictions as well. So. So that was the decision made. Um, Our office, the district attorney's office, we completely removed ourselves from it. um, Right, right. Because of uh, conflict. Um, And uh, it would have been better in hindsight had the sheriff's department done the same thing. It's a little hard to think how they could have handled that type of investigation, just Calumet County. Without assistance, I suppose Brown County, Green Bay is one county to the north of here, um, you know, could have been called. Might have been able. Yeah. That was one of the questions that I had while watching uh, the first Making a a Murderer. Um, What are the relative sizes of Calumet and Manitowoc? And, I mean, essentially would 
would Calumet really be in a position to have all hands on deck over in Manitowoc County? Would there be anybody to enforce the law in Calumet County? Yeah. No, they weren't in any. Are they, you know, they big enough to to yeah. do that? But they did yeah. also, and that's something. Again, we're adding, we're adding people who didn't have dogs in the fight because Tom Fassbender is with the D, uh, DOJ criminal investigations. He's not Manitowoc. He's not Calumet. Right. He's not even a local county or a local city. He is a state agent. And you said state troopers were assisting as well. Right. So, um, you know, he has no reason. Agents also. It's not, it's, uh, it's they're, and the attorney general is not uh, in Kelly County, the DA, obviously. So, it's not as if Manitowoc prosecutors and police handled the case. Um, the way it turned mm-hmm. out, unfortunately, is one of the key, key, there's the word, pieces of evidence. <laughs> and it's singular uh, key, <laughs> not plural key. Yeah, that's right, too, correct. And the key, uh, that piece of evidence, a key, uh, was found by um, – Two Manitowoc County officers, Colburn and Link, and um, correct. That uh, is the other part of the the story arc here, arc uh, that has made this possible um, mm-hmm. for for the uh, for the claims made by by making a murder, and you know the Eventually. circumstances of their finding that key uh, weren't accurately or objectively portrayed in making a murder. Um, there's no question no. that that was not accurately portrayed. Uh, but, again, had had Manitowoc, had the decision been made in retrospect the way it should have been made, which was no Manitowoc officers were to be there at all, um, there would be no making a murder, and we wouldn't be here. Um, so it's too bad. Right. Um, I, I think that that would have been, I, I think, again, that would have been probably the, uh, but as I understand it, and I believe you mentioned this in uh, Innocent Killer, um, Lieutenant Lank was the crime scene guy. Yeah, they were both. From Manitowoc. Yeah, he is an evidence tech guy. They were called upon mm-hmm. in Colburn, too. Because they are trained to do that. Calumet County, my understanding was they did not. They are a much smaller police agency. I mean, it's probably a third or maybe a fourth, probably a fourth, actually, mm-hmm. um, in terms of population in Calumet and in terms of the size of their police agency and their court system. Um, they have one judge. We have three Um they have two prosecutors. We have, what did we have? Five. Um, and it's just um, a much different uh, sized sheriff's department right. with with not as many resources and not as many specialties. So it made all kinds of sense to have Colburn and Link involved at that point in you know, subsequent searches, um, kind of secondary searches, um, for in this case, they were looking for 
specifically for pornography, and that's what the search warrant and the affidavit indicated. They were directed, um, or at least on the return, that that's what they were looking Mm -hmm. for because that room had already been searched um, for obvious signs of evidence. Um, So they're back in there doing sort of uh, follow-up searches. Uh, The thinking is that, you know, if if some hardcore pornography were found, perhaps that's relevant to motive or intent or whatever. Um, right. Avery's part in the kind of murder that eventually occurred and assault. Um, maybe wouldn't have got into trial. Maybe maybe wouldn't have. Probably wouldn't have. But maybe it would, depending on how closely it could be connected. Um, but they don't know at the time they're searching. They're just. When they start an investigation, right. looking for anything that might be relevant, of course, and um, so that's why they were there. And um, I, you know, I'm not sure how much the listeners know in terms of how making a murder portrayed it versus um, how a full explanation of it would have portrayed it. But um, making a murder made it seem very clear that there's no other conclusion by the viewer that could have been reached other than that um, this key was planted uh, with the lanyard right. in it by Colburn or Link um, when they were searching because it just sort of magically appeared, as Buting said, um, right on the floor in plain sight. And in fact, um, there was a photo of a bookcase at trial that making a murder could have easily included. They like pictures in other in other <laughs> regards. Uh, How to trial that, record? Yeah. yeah, exactly. That showed um, a uh, sort of a the edge or the back edge where the particle board, kind of a cheap backing of mm-hmm. of, the, of the bookcase, had been. Uh, cracked a bit or moved um, it uh, there was a gap there where the key easily could have fallen off of him which would have made it um, kind of a logical place for somebody who wanted to hide the ignition key Correct. Uh, a place to put it and Colburn explained very clearly to the jury at trial um, how he was shoving Finders full of pornography back and believes that that's how the key came out. Avery had to put the key somewhere. If if the last thing he's going to do is get rid of the Rav Four, um, correct. It has he has to have the key, of course, and you don't want to have it just on your kitchen table. So that would have been mm-hmm. a pretty good place to put it. You know, only the people involved know. Um, completely 100%, only they can prove uh, how that key came to be there. But the viewer should at least have both uh, explanations. You know, they shouldn't be thinking that there's just no explanation for this. It's obvious. Well, Um, the thing that that occurred to me when when the allegation of planting was made, even by Beauty and Strang, in the in the trial footage, where would Lank and Colburn have gotten to Reese's keys? Key, mm-hmm. key, right. single key on the lanyard that matches the lanyard that's locked inside the Rav Four mm-hmm. that had been hidden on Avery's property. 
and found by non-law enforcement personnel on Saturday after she'd been missing for four days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they never and offered uh, any... They never correct, connect those that. dots. How could they have gotten her key mm-hmm. at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you it, know, it, because it, it it was her key. It fit her car. Right. It was on her lanyard. Now, her DNA not being there helped. Maybe Stephen Avery wiped it down. Right. Put it in bleach <laughs> to get rid of her DNA so that if it was found, it don't have her DNA. It ain't hers. Mm-hmm. That's my imitation of Stephen Avery. <laughs> yeah. But, that ain't, that you know, ain't I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, they 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 uh, conspiracy theorists claim, boy, the police could have gone back to her residence and found a, a spare key, you know, um, or I suppose they could claim, uh, like they do, that the vehicle was found somewhere else and the key was in it. You know, and the police got it that way. You can you can come up with a million ways of how things could have happened, but that doesn't show right. that it's the way it did happen. And um, that's that's kind of what that's what's we're missing. dealing with here. Yeah, yeah, it is. And that is that is a hundred percent what's missing is, um, you know, how could they get her key? Mm-hmm. And this doesn't wasn't some random Toyota key. Uh, on a lanyard that they bought from the stop and sip down the road that no, they're claiming they're, belonged to her. I mean, it's been confirmed no, that it was. Yeah, no, and her they're key. not saying, and they're not saying that. They they don't think they have to connect that dot. I mean, they're saying, look, police somehow got a hold of the key, the key ignition key to the Rav Four. And obviously, Teresa, it was hers, and now it's it's in Avery's bedroom. And right. the police didn't see it earlier, so therefore, Colbert and Link must have must have drive. There's nothing you know mysterious about what they're saying, yeah. but they they are saying it. Um, they're assuming it. Uh, you can't prove a negative. Sometimes, usually, there's a bunch of circumstances that you can show that. Uh, that refute sort of disprove it, like take the blood mm-hmm. in the Rav Four. Well, there's all kinds of things that suggest that police didn't plant that, and that it came right from Avery. It's pretty clear, you know. He had a cut on his finger. It it mm-hmm. it was a fresh cut, a deep cut. It looks like it it uh, it it um, was in the same area, roughly, that would would uh, come from if you were to turn the ignition. And he had a cut on that particular finger, if you look at how it worked. Um, it's not something that can be just found somewhere. Where are you going to get Avery's blood, you know? Um, right. They, they tried originally in making a murder, tried, uh, even though they knew it couldn't have been from the vial, uh, from Avery's blood from from the first uh, wrongful conviction. Uh, by once again, you know, zooming in on a hole in a rubber stopper that is necessarily there in any blood vial where there's a specimen. Correct. Um, that was the funny thing. And and after I watched that one episode, and every time Jared Buting said something about it, 
I said, and how do you think the blood gets in there, honey, by osmosis? Right. There you go. The nurse thinks really hard, and the blood goes out of your arm and into the purple top tube. Yeah. No needle. It works, isn't it? Yeah. Don't need a needle. That's in Star Trek. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So um, that was was one of the funniest. I'm sorry. I I, I guess you know Jerry Beauty. And have you heard about... uh, Strang's appointment by your new governor to a, I guess it's a criminal justice reform mm-hmm. panel. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, Strang um, has been very committed to uh, the, the system and making it as good as it can be. And um, I've uh, served on boards with Strang and other. Uh, in, in other agencies and groups, and he'll he'll uh, he'll he'll be a good addition. Look, I don't look at this kind of as a, you know us versus them kind of thing. Oh no, uh, I, no. I will say that that with Buting, um, I think he's crossed a, a line really um, directly and and really kind of disappointingly. Um, you know, he has some duty to a former client uh, that whose case is sort of still pending, um, not to harm case, but he doesn't have a duty to to uh, to continually claim police plant evidence and framed his client, his former client. Correct. And um, to use every opportunity he can to continue to defame people's reputations. He doesn't need to do that. Um, He could still be involved in criminal justice reform and could still speak all over the world without, you know, getting so precise. If you listen closely to to Strain, um, he is, is much more guarded in terms of how he views the case and how he communicates the case, speaks more, you know, generally about... Mm-hmm. Problems in the criminal justice system, and and specifically with regard to this case, and uncertainty about the case, and that sort of thing, without um, flat out accusing people of really serious misconduct. And uh, correct. So, I think Jerry wants to be Kathleen Zellner when he grows up. because yeah. <laughs> that's her. That is her yeah. shtick. Well, I mean, rumor has it. It's not just a rumor, I don't think. I think it was in uh, Newsweek or something that Kathleen Zellner has a 3,000-square-foot home movie mm-hmm. theater. Can you imagine that? Yeah. 3,000-square-foot. That, I that, wonder how many exonerees are happy with the cut that she took from their wrongful conviction suit. Well, I think they're probably pretty happy with her. They, she did she did pretty good by them. Uh, although it's my understanding, a lot of those cases uh, in Cook County were pretty much made by the Innocence Project or the criminal defense uh-huh. attorney. And she just them. came in and she came in and took the took yeah. the credit and the attention. But well, I'm sure I she did a lot of work. And I'm sure she's a very good civil litigant. I'm sure she is. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't pay to, you know, suggest she's not. I think she's a very smart lady. But, but I also she has think this shotgun she, approach. Well, she throws yeah. out a bunch of crap and sees what's going to stick. Well, everything sticks and, in, in this 
court of public opinion. <laughs> she knows nothing will stick in court, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, and it's a, I it's personally believe Ryan Ferguson. It, I personally believe Ryan Ferguson is guilty. Mm-hmm. And I'm disappointed that Boone County, Missouri, did not file an appeal on his federal habeas writ mm-hmm. when it was granted. Yeah. Because well, she like accused an innocent man case, but, yeah. of of murder mm-hmm. based but, on on uh, flyers and information found with a sports editor mm-hmm. talking about college and high school sports. Right. Yeah, I'm familiar with uh, with the facts of that one a little bit too. I, uh, you know, the the other accusing people she'll say well in this case in the Avery case and people have pointed that that out she's just naming people as alternate potential alternate suspects Mm -hmm. um, as if that's not also accusing people I don't know if you know um, some of the people she's mentioned Teresa Habach's former boyfriend and the current you know main target of her yeah, accusatory finger, body, Yeah, I don't know that they look at it so kindly. Like, well, she's just exploring other possibilities, and mm-hmm. you know, lots of people think right now that Bobby Dassey's a murderer. Um, Correct, and Scott so, Toddick. and Scott Toddick, and for a while they they thought the same of uh, Teresa Hubbard, Ryan Hilliger. Yeah, yeah. If not a murderer, at least uh, evidence planter. So. Uh, yeah, I which don't is know. another prevents it, which is another another theory that gives me a headache. The police got Ryan to drive the Rav Four onto the Avery salvage lot and plant it there. Well, I think huh? the most specific thing they did for a while was that Ryan uh, snuck into Avery's residence after Avery left. For credits up north, and took his blood out of the sink some with pipettes. Yeah, uh, fresh yeah. blood, and then planted it in. The, that's the real yeah. the specific claim I've heard that that <laughs> uh, gets close to the uh, brain mapping uh, science um, in, uh, of uh, Kathleen Zellner. Those those two things to me are about the most far fetched, but. It's- if there is ever a hearing on trying to get that testimony admitted, if there's no, ever there, a Daubert hearing on that, I want to come to Wisconsin and yeah. sit in the courtroom with a box of popcorn. Yeah, that would be fun to And watch, watch that because that yeah. that guy is going to be absolutely skewered mm-hmm. because he's the only one doing it. There's no, you know, it, there's no scientific validation except his. Mm-hmm. Nobody else does it except him. Right. So you well, couldn't, then, you know, give it to somebody at University of Wisconsin and have them yeah. recreate everything. Well, then it's not going to pass Albert standards, is it? And so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. <laughs> this is this is why I mentioned it. Mm-hmm. They, yeah. So. But it's yeah, it is crazy, and and trying to um, because Stephen Avery had one, which was hilarious. 
then, you know, Mr. Kratz and uh, Mr. Colburn and Mr. Link and all these other people sub- should subject themselves to one as well. And I bet you if they did, they, she'd get the exact result she wants because the guy's in her pocket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it all gets pretty silly, um, almost to the mm-hmm. point where you don't want to even dwell among the silliness after a while. It just it just gets. Awfully, I, I think uh, it helps though sometimes to to take the the theory and show the flaws. Or take the theory and show the whole set of facts that make it impossible. Right. <clears throat> like Ryan Hillegas even being on the Avery property for a second, let alone planting a car and then going into Avery's trailer and taking his blood. I that mean, first of all, didn't he have a vicious too, dog? Didn't he have a vicious dog that probably would have torn Ryan a new one when, yeah, when the, Ryan approached the trailer? Yeah, yeah. I, I I think when when you get to that point, you're you're just giving them some credence to the to the ridiculous part of this. Whether they had a dog or not, oh, to suggest fun. that this guy's lurking around the house waiting for Avery to leave. So he can sneak into the house with the hopes of maybe finding something he can plant. Some blood somewhere. And coming upon That didn't some belong blood to Teresa. That is still in a liquid form uh, that he assumes is from Avery. How would you know, right? And therefore you plant it uh, and he puts it on the ignition. Um, yeah, I mean, I. I it just we're we're in the world of make believe here, and um, I'm kind of I guess I'd rather speak to some larger issues about it if 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 there are any um, because it it just it's so far uh, right. fetched and um, it, it there just is. There's just nothing to this. This is the most obvious case of guilt um, as a prosecutor that you can have, not just physical evidence, you know, blood evidence, DNA evidence. Um, and the circumstantial but evidence. circumstantial of... evidence is, is incredible. Um, mm-hmm. So it's the last place that, that she was she was known to have been. He got her there um, through, you know, means that were pretty obviously meant to to hide his identity. Um, he lied about right. why she was there. Other people saw him deposit things in areas where her belongings were later found. He admitted Fine. to cleaning up uh, uh, what turned to, what was the murder scene, and. Um, <laughs> On the night of after having a fire, after lying about having a fire here. I mean, there's just so mm-hmm. much here. He lied about whether he even had a fire. He, right. Uh, he lied about, lied her. about whether he, he even saw her that she day. She came, right. right. Um, and then he so, lied about, yeah, he saw her, but he didn't talk to her. And then he talked to her, but only for a couple minutes. And yeah. she handed him a 
magazine and drove off. Yeah. Yeah. And the stories keep changing. Mm-hmm. But and we're, the stories keep changing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really frustrating uh, experience uh, to, to have so many people convinced uh, of something that's just so obviously not the case. So. Right. And to be so vehemently, um, uh, I, I guess, I, I don't even, I don't know how to, committed, mm-hmm. they should be committed, some of them, and to be so foul, foul and vile and uh, vindictive. I mean, I'm not going to go to Kathleen Zellner's Twitter feed or send her, you know, direct messages telling her what I really think about her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to go to the book Wrecking Crew and put negative reviews or go to her, uh, go to Yelp and put negative reviews of her law firm. Mm-hmm. I mean, let her do what she's going to do. She has a right to be wrong. Right. And I have a right to be wrong if I'm wrong. <laughs> you know? Right. You have a yeah. right to, to say what right. you, you know, exactly. say what you say and, and yep. um you certainly have an inside an inside view a lot more than a, than a lot of people you know so well, and you can would, believe that what happened in 85 was wrong and and you know wrong was done but still believe that he's guilty in 2005 and there's nothing inconsistent with that because it's based on two separate cases <clears throat> at two separate times in Stephen Avery's life. And maybe 1985 contributed, but maybe the stress of being out or the stress of not getting a check for $36 million like he maybe thought he was entitled to. Or maybe he just thought he was bulletproof and could get away with it. Well, I think quite a quite a few of those things uh, probably played a role in it. Yeah, and not just one. Um, he one of the things he did is he spoke with a reporter from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel in between when he got out and when he committed the murder and talked about how tough it is on the outside. And mm-hmm. um, just some days he just can't take it and just said, just put me back in there, you know. So. He was right. not doing well at all, um, and we know um, the attack on his fiance Jody Stakowski that was completely downplayed in making a murderer. I mean, he he had mm-hmm. a, a really serious violent streak to him that uh, doesn't prove he committed the murder. No more than the fact that he rammed his vehicle into SM's car and held her at gunpoint proves it, or that he tortured cats and poured gas on gasoline and threw them in the fire. None of that proves proves he committed the murder, but it's all uh, things that if we're looking at it years later, we're not a jury, you know, uh, assessing whether he should be convicted. So we couldn't look at those things at all. But if we're going to balance all of the evidence and not just speculate on whether Ryan, um, Hillegas snuck into Avery's 
uh, housed uh, and found some blood, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna kind of keep some semblance of of proportion and reason and rationality mm-hmm. and look at all of it without getting hung up on one little thing that makes no sense and then getting into right. kind of a silly back and forth about it, um, then uh, I think we can we can see uh, pretty clearly where what happened here, but that's the problem. People don't seem to want to kind of get to the to the uh, to the heart of it and right. how can you how can you avoid it when in a conspiracy theory you can pick you know kind of a, almost an infinite number of things that you could make look suspicious um i haven't if you can think of it i i'm curious you know what is the what is the most suspicious thing they've been able to point to you know, I, I really can't, uh, you know, I, I can't think of anything that is has any basis other than just kind of, you know. Uh, Murmur and innuendo. Exactly. Or, or you know, perceived motive that isn't even mm-hmm. really a motive um, by people that weren't even there at the time. You know, right. What they've done is they've taken a bunch of circumstances, coincidences as to who's found what, when, and they've uh, twisted them into uh, a scenario where um, you could think, well, it's possible, you know, if you just look at one thing at a time and you ignore all the other evidence. Um, And boy, it's hard to it's hard to point that out. Uh, you know, to people who are already convinced. But, you know, it's interesting. People who believe Avery is innocent, first of all, they don't believe any of the any of his past behavior. They think that's all lies, 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 damn lies made up to make him look bad. And yet they rely on the same types of things. Chuck Avery, Earl Avery, they each have their past issues and Stevens pointing fingers at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott Toddick has had some issues. Uh, as you know, Kathleen Zellner has apparently found loads of porn uh, that Bobby Dassey looked at on the computer. Yeah, and and how to that... her, those are all indicators that they're the real killers. Right. Yeah. But Doesn't yet, if you point sense, out but... Stephen Avery and right. those similar things, oh, no, 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 that doesn't count. Right. Well, actually, much more relevant things. I mean, porn is one thing. Disgusting porn, you know, looked at on some computer where maybe Bobby Dassey looked at it um, before and after. Um, mm-hmm. And nothing, nothing, uh, you know, in Zellner's original filing, it sounded like she had something pretty specific in terms of, I think, the burning of bodies and uh, knives she to the, you know, that kind of specifics. But nothing is dated before, no indication Teresa's that murder. he accessed or anybody accessed that prior to Teresa's murder. So, right. 
and long after the news was out about the grisly nature of how Teresa apparently was killed, you have some kid, assuming it was him, um, searching in the midst of all the other crap he was searching for, uh, a few terms associated with with how she died. What we're supposed to take from that that therefore Bobby Dassey um, is the is the murder and Stephen isn't. You know, it ranks mm-hmm. up there with with the the Ryan Hilliga sneaking into the bedroom. Um, Right. Or into the trailer and getting Stephen's blood and planting it, it and, and brain mapping. I mean, <laughs> frankly, I don't see it as any stronger. Uh, it just, I don't know. I, I hate to <laughs> sound like I'm uh, a, a broken record here, but it does. It no. boggles my mind as to how people have have made this so convoluted with such an obvious case of guilt with with just you know pure speculation and and uh theories that have that are that are nothing no in basis terms of actual fact. you know fact or relevance i mean it's a reality yeah, it's we're living in an alternate reality time, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, it so. is now ten twenty-eight, and we have gone a half an hour past our live broadcast. We're in the archive portion of the show now, um, and I want to thank you so much for joining us. I don't want to keep you too much longer because yeah, you and well, I, I sound I, like we could both go all night. Yeah. Well, it's been interesting, Lisa. I, I appreciate you having me on, and I'm, I'm sure you'll have an interesting show next week, too. So, uh, yes. Enjoyed and it much. Again, thank you for joining us, okay. and I have enjoyed, I, I really enjoyed Innocent Killer. I am going to post an Amazon review. I'm just horrible at doing those because oh. I can't think of what to say. But I will, I am. And then I'm working on Indefensible now. Good, good. I hope you. I started that Sunday night. Mm -hmm. And I'm enjoying that as well. Um, Very good. Because, again, you do have an inside perspective, and and you were there as things happened Mm -hmm. uh, in 2005. So, you know, even though you weren't hands-on involved in the prosecution or investigation, uh, it's still, you know, like I said, part of your experience. Exactly. And I appreciate it. So um, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. And uh, if you write anything else, please let me know, and we will be happy to have you back on. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know if you are looking into true crime career, but you certainly could. Yeah. Well, uh, right now I'm I'm looking into into just uh, trying to enjoy life and uh, and representing a few people who find themselves on the wrong side of the law. But writing is a is a is a, a wonderful thing to do, but it's a, it takes an awful lot of effort and time and energy. Yes. But uh, it everybody has it in them. If I could write a couple of books, uh, anyone else can. Believe me. So, all right. Well, <laughs> thank you, you very much. If you for ever. If you ever want to research assistant, just let me know. Okay, you bet. Okay, you have a good night. All righty. Thank you, you too. Bye.
Bye. Well, Lisa, All right, Michael. That was that was really good, uh, you know, especially, you know, with the subject content as relevant as what it is with uh, making a murderer and all that uh, really exploding on Netflix. Yeah, uh, he he is his books. I would recommend uh, Innocent Killer, the tr- a true story of a wrongful conviction and its astonishing aftermath, and Indefensible: The Missing Truth about Stephen Avery, Teresa Hallback, and Making a mur- Murderer. They're available mm-hmm. on Amazon. They're available on Kindle. Uh, I believe they're also available at Barnes and Noble and several other websites uh, out there. They are great books. Uh, They give a lot of, you know, inside information. And it's not somebody who came in five years later and put things, cobbled things together. I mean, it's somebody who was there and who lived it. Uh Uh And it, it really is a great insight into both the wrongful conviction case as well as the murder case uh, against Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. Uh, and he's a good, he is a talented writer. Yeah. Absolutely. Some attorneys, Very good. not so much, but um, he is a talented writer. And absolutely. both books, I mean, Innocent Killer, I think I finished in about three nights because I couldn't put it down. <laughs> Those are the best kind of books. So, all right. Well, I think we're I think we're we're ready to call that one done. Oh, okay. And uh, well, let's wrap. I want to thank. And... <laughs> I want to wrap things up. I'm gonna do my outro, and then we're gonna say goodnight. Thank you for listening, okay. clear and convincing, Michael. Take three. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us next week for Episode 33, State of Wisconsin versus Stephen Avery and Brendan Daffy. On Thursday, November 3rd, 2005, Teresa Halbach, a 25-year-old photographer from Calumet County, Wisconsin, was reported missing by her mother. She hadn't been seen or heard from since Monday, October 31st, when she photographed a van for sale as part of her job with Auto Trader magazine. Her last appointment was booked by Stephen Avery using the name B. Yonda, and the van was located at Avery Auto Salvage in Manawak County, Wisconsin. On Saturday, November 5th, Teresa's Toyota RAV4 was found hidden on the Avery property. We'll be talking to Kenneth Klatz about the evidence linking Avery and his nephew Brendan Dassey to the murder of Teresa Halbach and the backlash from the Netflix documentary Making a Murderer. Mr. Kratz is a former Calumet County prosecutor who tried Avery and Dassey, and he's also the author of Avery, The Case Against Stephen Avery, and what making a murderer got wrong. In the meantime, y'all have a great week. Be safe. We'll talk to you next Tuesday. Good night.